0: We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Pacifica affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3, Valley Free Radio, produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project, streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. I'm your host, uh, Will Hall. And today we're doing another follow-up story about the death um, in police custody of Jim Chassie in Portland, Oregon. And we're going to be speaking with uh, Julie Diamond, who is a um, faculty at the Process uh, Work Center of Portland and has been doing some training with the Portland police as part of the fallout um, from Jim Chassie's um, death. And um, there have been some developments um, in the case since... uh, The last time I did a show about, I guess, was several, five or six months ago, actually. People can check the archives and listen to that. Um, And uh, let's see, I'm just going to read the um, article that was in the Portland Mercury on uh, November 14th because it provides some basic background to the case for people who don't know and then sort of describes where things are uh, now. So, um, pre-trial hearings in the cop-related death of James Chassie, Jr., it is arguably Portland's most controversial cop lawsuit ever, and even though it will be almost two years before a jury is scheduled to sit down and rule on the case, the pretrial hearings are already heated, with both sides accusing the other of trying to prejudice a fair trial. Civil rights attorney Stom Steensen, who is representing the family of James Philip Chassie Jr., um, recently won a record half million dollar settlement against the city of Portland in a different officer-involved lawsuit um, that was uh, decided on Thursday, November 8th, but he appears to be pursuing the case with Chassis with more than just a financial settlement in mind. The Chassis family, along with Steenson, all want sweeping changes in the way the police bureau operates. James Chassie's father, James Sr., and his brother have sat patiently behind Steenson on the hardwood courtroom benches on the ninth floor of the Federal Justice Center downtown since the hearings began earlier this year. Um, what happened? The details of Chassie's deaths were shocking. Chassie, a 145-pound, 42-year-old schizophrenic, was spotted by police in the Pearl District urinating in the street on September 17, 2006. After a scuffle with police, Chassie died in a squad car being driven by the same officers. The squad car was en route to Portland Adventist Hospital, which is 8.4 miles from the Multnomah County Detention Center on Southwest 3rd, not the Good Samaritan Hospital, which was 2.6 miles away from the jail, or the emergency room at um, OHSU 2.1 miles from the jail. It remains unclear why Chassie was confined to a holding cell for 23 minutes and what happened there before a jail nurse looked through the window and noticed he was unconscious. Chassie had been medically cleared at the scene of his arrest earlier on, no- on Northwest 13th and Everett by a team of paramedics. However, an autopsy found extensive evidence of external and internal injuries when Chassis died, including 16 broken ribs and abrasions and bruising all over his body. Since his death, several people have come forward to file tort claims and lawsuits, alleging that they have been beaten by sheriff's deputies and occasionally cops, too, in holding cells and the booking area, of MCDC where James was held for 31 minutes before dying on his attempted transport to the Adventist Hospital. The alleged beating of 40-year-old Michael Evans in the lobby of the jail was captured on video just six days before Chassie's time there on September 11, 2006. One of the officers involved in Chassie's death, Christopher Humphreys, was found to be the police bureau's second highest user of force in statistics released last November. Humphreys also has a history or pattern of falsifying police reports, according to attorney Steenson, who says his office has evidence to support this allegation. Humphreys has been the subject of several Internal Affairs Division complaints when the numbers were released and has subsequently become the subject of another unrelated lawsuit. He is still on patrol for the police bureau. So if people are interested in more information about the James Chassie case in the background, um, you can check out James Chassis, J A M E S C H A S S E dot blogspot dot com, which is the um, Mental Health Association of Portland. You can also just Google Mental Health Association of Portland and get more information uh, from them. So, obviously, it's a very complicated um, issue, and there's a lot of different um, things that can be said about police violence and about the issue of mental health and the criminal justice system. I'm really interested in our guest today, Julie Diamond, because um, she brings a, a real insider's perspective in some way. She's been actually involved with the new training of the Portland Police Department and has really had an opportunity to kind of get inside of the culture of the Portland police and get a sense of uh, kind of the mind of uh, the police and especially in the context of um, being under a lot of public pressure and the, the, the tragedy of James Chassie's um, death. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. So um, let me read um, Julie's bio here, and then welcome her on the show. Um, Julie is um, a PhD in sociolinguistics, and she researched conflict and status rank in small group interaction. She has been instrumental in designing many of the training programs and process work, including both master's degrees Um, and um, diploma. Julie also works with organizers and communities on issues concerning leadership, team development, and change processes. Between 1999 and 2001, she worked on an enterprise development project in the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, which brought together labor presidents and representatives from the former communist countries, Swiss and German trade unions, and Swiss Ministry of Aid and Development to help design a labor education program for Macedonian workers in the new capitalist economy. Julie has written several articles and books on process work, including her recent A Path Made by Walking, Process Work in Practice, which she co-authored with her partner, Carolyn Jones. Her articles and essays can be found online on her website, juliediamond.net. So thanks a lot for joining us uh, today, Julie Diamond.
1: Thank you. Well, it's good to be here.
0: Yeah, I know it's been a long it's been a long process getting you on the show. We've had some technical problems and we've been trying to schedule you for a while, so I really appreciate your patience and I'm really glad to to have you here.
1: Uh, it's nice to be here and my fingers are crossed that we'll <laughs> make it through without any more technical difficulties.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um yeah, the the joys of community community radio. Well, tell us I, I mean I, I'm interested in um and I think our listeners are interested in in general what um process work is and what process-oriented psychology is. But tell us just to begin, tell us what you've been doing uh, with the police force and how you got uh, involved in the the, uh, training program that they've been doing after the death of uh, James Chassie.
1: Well, I contacted the police originally uh, several years before the Chassie incident. I had wanted to offer my, my skills to the force and to work you know, doing some training around crisis intervention and conflict resolution, I always felt that the police really needed a lot of support around, um, you know, how to deal with, you know, conflict and situations on the street. I mean, they have their training, which is um, around levels of force, but I felt that sort of uh, being able to de-escalate crisis without resorting to force would, would, you know, is, is a fantastic skill for everybody, especially for the police. But typically police they have internal trainers so it was very hard for me to really get any headway there and then um but I did make some contacts and um I was fortunate to be colleagues with Lisbeth Garretson, who was uh previously a supervisor at Project Respond which is a uh, an agency that works together with the police in intervening in crisis situations and um after the chassis incident I was talking with her and we contacted um the person who developed the original CIT training and this was 10, 15 years ago, uh, based on the Memphis model that was developed by NAMI. And,
0: and just, what is um, the, uh, Julie, what is the CIT training for people who maybe don't? These, don't know? I'm
1: sorry, the, the crisis intervention training that the Portland police had, which was a voluntary training prior to the chassis incident. That was developed by Lieutenant Sarah Westbrook about 10 years ago. Um, uh, and it was a voluntary training that the police had. So after the chassis incident, Lisbeth and I contacted her and she had just been uh, assigned to redesign the entire CIT training and to make it mandatory by the police chief, Rosie Sizer. So uh, I had met Sarah earlier in my, um, when I had contacted the police force and so she invited me and she invited Lisbeth and several others from Project Respond and from other agencies to uh, as well as the uh, members of the training division of the Portland Police Bureau to help her redesign the entire CIT training so um, we had about two months to do that and and, and then we had to roll it out and training the entire Portland force. So. It was a lot of work, for, you know, in a short period of time. So that's how I got involved.
0: How long ago was that? Are you still doing this training, or was this um, in the past? I'm.
1: The training is now underway. It's been. It's the first training was delivered in February of last year, uh, to um, February 2007, of this past February. Um, the, uh, the, the the team that gathered together around Sarah Westbrook that she, she created, that began in October, November, right after the chassis incident um, in 06. So we worked through December and January and um, rolled it out in February, and it's been happening monthly for the last, um, for this last year, and it's probably going to continue for another, I'd say, 12 to 18 months until every member of the police force has gone through it eventually it'll become part of the permanent police academy so every officer who's trained on the portland force will have to go through this training and they'll get it at their academy that they have to attend before they become a police officer
0: as i mentioned in the um, introduction certainly it's certainly a complicated issue and there's questions of discipline and whether the individual officers should still be on the force but i think that there's a really really a consensus that training and especially de-escalation is really, really important part of this. And Julie, you mentioned not just for the police, for all of us. And so I think this is, it's really exciting to have you on the show and be talking about this to think about like, well, what can the police do differently and how can um, police force not just in Portland, but around the country be trained differently? Um, What was it like when you first went in and I imagine like your first day kind of at school as the new, Teacher, so to speak, and what was it like going in there, and how did you kind of in- encounter this, this room full of, of police officers?
1: Um, it, was, it was a hard first day of school, I have to tell you. The, the stereotype of the, um, you know, the, sort of the brotherhood, the police department and the fire department, you know, they really, there is a real insider thing, and they really do not often have trainers from outside the force. And um, I, I can understand it's a high-pressure job, and the skepticism of you know what do you know, and you don't know what we go through every day, and who are you to teach us, and just because you know stuff doesn't mean you know what our you know what our job entails. That that attitude was certainly there. I I uh, we worked really hard. I I really have to give an enormous amount of credit to Sarah Westbrook, um, who you know led the team and and was really the the, the Designer of the new program. And um, she just has a real passion for crisis intervention training and a real passion for mental health awareness. And one of the things that she absolutely emphasized to us, the the people on the team who designed it and then delivered the training, was that it was not going to degenerate into an us versus them or a finger pointing situation. That if we really wanted people to learn, they had to trust us. And that trust comes from feeling. Like everybody understood, and that we were into helping and not into blaming or accusing, and it wasn't just going to be getting up on a soapbox and and uh, uh, you know delivering the truth, but it was really going to we were going to really focus on helping them uh, where they needed help. And um,
0: I can imagine that I can imagine that since it's a mandatory training. There's right. the there's the danger of people going in, kind of like students, of like, okay, I just have to do my hours here, and but Absolutely. you and just be, have it be a formality of just a bureaucratic hurdle. So how did you kind of deal with that? How did you approach that and, and really kind of overcome some of the insider, um, the insider attitudes, and really demonstrate and, and really make a connection around really being helpers.
1: Such a good question. I, I it's almost like a twenty four seven kind of kind of um, thing where. Everything we said had to really prove that point. So uh, we didn't come in saying, "Here, we know how to do it." But we we said, "Look, you're the experts. You know what's going on out there. We've got some ideas. You tell us if this is helpful or not. You know, you give, bring us your examples. You know, we want to work with the situations that you have there." Uh, one of the first things Sarah Westbrook did was that she contacted officers personally through the force in preparation of the training, and she asked a number of officers if they would speak. On videotape about mental illness in their family, mental illness that they themselves suffered from, or just how mental illness affected them. And so we had videotapes of officers on the force talking about mental illness, their sons, their daughters, their their sisters, their parents, growing up with a mentally ill parent. And right away we communicated the idea that it's not just out there and we were trying to really work hard to break down the stigma and the stereotyping that enables um, uh, the kind of behavior that's been happening. So um, that helped too. People felt that we were really kind of uh, working with them and not against them and, and The the police chief comes into every single training and thanks people for coming and says it's really important to her, so there's a real buy-in from the top. And and we offer offer them the opportunity to give us feedback. We say, look, we want to design a training that's useful, that works. We don't want to just shove something down your throat. You tell us what works and what doesn't work, and after every single day, we had a feedback session just you know, 30 minutes of what did you like, what didn't you like, what worked, what wasn't effective. And we really give them the idea that this is a training that is there, uh, that they're helping us create. So lots of different things. I don't think there was one thing we did, but it was just an ongoing process of of um, trying to communicate that this training is meant to serve you and it's not something against you, even though it's mandatory. And it-
0: mm-hmm. So you started, you, started with, um, you started with these videos of interviews that you had done with officers talking about mental illness or what gets diagnosed as mental illness in their own lives. What was the reaction to people seeing those, those videos? It was
1: really powerful. It was really powerful, and um, I think it had a huge effect. And uh, one of the ways that I personally measured the effect of it was um, after the second day sometimes this even happened on the first day, but starting on usually the second day or the end of the first day and definitely building on the third day, during each break, uh, officers would come up to us and uh, start talking about uh, some of the post-traumatic stress, you know, experiences they were having and debriefing um, uh, some shootings they'd been through or debriefing really frightening incidents and just kind of talking and um, you could see that they started to make the link that this mental illness training was really also an awareness training about their own states and their own experiences and um, that was a little unexpected, but they started to. Op- people would open up, and 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 after each training, after each month, we would have about thirty people a month come through. We would ask them, "Anybody else have a story they want to share on videotape?" And we we got like two or three or four more people as the as the trainings went by. So it was very
0: powerful. Yeah, I can imagine that's a real um, a real switch in consciousness from where the police and the mentally ill people are out there to actually this is something that we're dealing with, and it's in our families, and it's in our lives, and in our experiences as well. So that sounds like a really interesting approach. What were some of the other kind of techniques that you... So you offered people a chance to join the videos and and to do more videos um, once the training had started, but what were some of the other techniques that you were offering and and the actual content of the training that you were giving?
1: Well, one of the things that we used is we used a lot of role play scenarios project respond the agency a lot of the tra- some of the trainers are from project respond and they have a great reputation among the police force because they're seen as really helpful when there's a um, mental health emergency the police go out with project respond and project respond just has a terrific track record of being able to work with people on the street and um and so we would do role plays and these are situations that m- the cops recognized, and that came out of Project Respond staff members' experiences. We also used cops' videos, and we would show situations, and we'd debrief it and discuss it. Um, and I think we had a lot of open conversation with them, and so we would help them think through situations, and I think that was very effective also, you know, not just, you know, giving a major download of theory or ideas, but to really use these role plays and use these videos to prompt a discussion. And to ask them what would you do? How would you do it differently? Critique the cops on the video? Uh, can you come up and try to intervene? How would you intervene here um, The content of what we presented was, I would say, it was half uh, straightforward information about mental illness, and that included these videos of officers talking about mental illness in their families. It, you know the ears opened a lot wider when it was a fellow officer talking about the situation than it was you know just a mental health service provider. But there was just a lot of information about uh, mental illness and there was a lot of information about stigma. Uh, We spent the very first, I think the first part of the first day uh, and the second day as well talking about stigma and the history of mental illness and the deinstitutionalization um, uh, of the hospitals um, and And then just a lot of facts about medication, why people don't take medication, what the reality is for people living with mental illness uh, is. And then the second part of the training was really a lot around crisis, the crisis cycle, escalation and de-escalation, and how to intervene at different stages in a crisis cycle. When someone's responsive and then they go into less responsive states, um, you know, recognizing the signs and the symptoms and the signals and how to intervene into those states uh, in a way that's compassionate and also a way that's very effective.
0: Did you find, in terms of the... It sounds like a lot of what you were doing was educating about the experiences of people who've been in the system and been diagnosed. Did you find it that there was a lot of ignorance or a lot of stereotypes or a lot of confusion uh, about those issues? Yeah,
1: A lot. A lot. There's a value or... I can't I don't know whether it's a feeling, an attitude, a value, judgment, whatever, but there's often there's a feeling of, you know, why don't these people just get it together or you know, why don't it's a choice somewhere, like alcohol and drug use, you know, it's not a disease, it's a choice and you know, and I think that um I think that was some of the some of the stereotypes that we encountered or some of the judgments that we encountered and you know, really, after a few days of really seeing the reality for people, I think that um, I think that uh, it, it really changed for them. And, and unfortunately, mental illness on the streets looks sometimes, or is often, mixed up with drug use and alcohol use and homelessness. And there's like a uh, there's a c- combination of so many socio-political, medical. Um, Psychological issues, um, economic issues, um, and so it's really. I, I think to pull it apart and to really talk about mental illness opened their eyes a lot because a lot of times it looks like drunkenness or it looks like homelessness or it looks like belligerence or it looks like uh, noncompliance and you know showing what it's all about. I think that was really really helpful and. and, and you know people talked about their how it was changing what they thought about mental illness
0: was there a lot of diversity in the attitudes of the officers i mean did they did you find that they had discussions and debates and um educating each other and some of them had a more a more awareness and others had less
1: one of the most amazing parts of the whole training for me was the discovery that um Every, you know, I mean, I know this theoretically, but every group has the conflict within them. They're, you know, so after, in the very first training on the third day, this huge debate erupted. And um, the officers start to really argue with each other. And, you know, they get to a point where they feel safe enough and all their issues come out. So there's not one thought that I re- you know, there's not one viewpoint that I read about in the paper that didn't come up, that doesn't come up in the police force itself that all the different viewpoints the uh you know the upsetness with the use of force the you know pro use of force uh, anti use of force all those issues are right there within the police force and um, and once the officers felt uh safe and uh free enough to talk among themselves and really debate they really got into it with each other and that was more effective than anything because when older cops, you know, say to the younger cops, you guys, you know, all you do is use the taser because, you know, you're, you know, I'm old school and, you know, I was a sheriff out in, you know, out in the country and there was two of us and if I called for backup, it was going to be 40 minutes, so you got to learn how to talk to people. Um, And if you don't know how to talk, you're in trouble and you new guys, you know, you just reach for the taser and because, you know, it's easy, but, you know, you've, whatever they start getting into it with each other like that and it was really super effective learning for people to hear it from other cops and not just from the talking heads at the front of the room
0: well it's really it's really interesting because there's kind of like a professional need to have a unified face to the public and so these kinds of divisions and diversity within the police isn't something that we really think about and i think that as a social justice activist and as someone who's often very critical of the police for very good reason I I think that myself and I think other people lose the sense that it's not a monolithic thing that there are very very progressive and very insightful voices within um, the police force as well as the, the voices and perspectives that fit the other stereotypes of sort of cowboy violence and just enjoying conflict and and this kind of thing so it sounds like that was was really something that you were privy to that maybe an outsider wouldn't have any kind of chance to see? Is that right?
1: Uh, that's absolutely right. I felt. I mean, when that first it happens every time. It happened every time as the training went on. But the very first time it happened, I was my jaw dropped. I, I was I was amazed, and I, I I almost dared not speak because I was afraid I'd remind them that I was there and that they'd stop. You know. And um, but it. But they have a need to. But even you know, I I think there's a need to, and I think that like kind of like any group that's under that's under pressure. You know, they're, they're, they're the job itself is under pressure, and then, of course, the, the, you know, the, the political climate puts them under pressure. I think like any group, marginalized group or whatever, under pressure, they have to kind of close ranks and put an united, you know, show a united front because it's dangerous um, to show diversity. Um, but um, I, that was a big learning for me, to, re, to be reminded that, that there's all, all those roles are present within every group.
0: What are, what are, you mentioned, you know, street encounters and the idea of the old-school police saying, well, look, you know, you just have to learn how to talk to people. And what are, what are some of the kind of common scenarios that the officers presented to you as, look, this is what we need help with, this is what we run into all the time?
1: Some of the things that they really don't know how to deal with are violent rages, um, where people uh, basically have to be restrained. That, that's a really tough situation. Um, I think the scenarios that they presented were actually quite diverse. Um, I think one of the things that I learned a great deal about one of the complexities of the police work is that they're not just, it's not just the police officer and the person, it's the public. And they have, they have to keep their eye on the public. So whatever's happening, their responsibility is to make the perimeter safe, is to keep people safe in the streets. So whatever's happening, they have to you know, sort of manage a, a very complex situation. I think some of the situations that they presented always involved innocent people or bystanders or people in a house or children or something where there was other complicating factors. They couldn't just deal with the person one-to-one. There was always other people there, a crowd or a city street or something like that.
0: And they have they have kind of elaborate procedures. I mean, we we tend to think of the police just kind of like, they're the guy with the gun. They do what they want to do. But actually, they have very elaborate procedures for in, in this kind of situation, you can use this sort of force. You can arrest someone only under these kinds of circumstances. You can take someone to the ground only under. And I think uh, we had talked before about you know, the way in which the police are, are very, very observant and they're watching for signals. They're watching for indications, and that this might be an area where de-escalation tools and conflict resolution tools might come in, instead of getting them to the point of okay, let's let's jump on this person. Let's let's use force.
1: That's that's exactly right, and that's one of the things we kept trying to point out. And you know, the, the, the dialogues that we'd have with them got got very. They always had the same kind of mo because. Uh, We'd say, all right, what can you do in the situation? And then always someone would say, um, well, he took a step forward. So under those circumstances, and you asked him to take his hands out of his pocket, he didn't, and he took a step forward. So right away, I mean, you got to, you know, that's that's a classic thing where you have to now implement X, Y, Z, you know, use of force. And then inevitably, somebody in the room would say, well, yeah, but you know, you could also, you could, you know, and then there was the gray zone, and it always came up like that, you know, there was, a, the resistance got manifested first with, well, you got to do this and that and the other, that's the procedure, and we got to follow the book, and then eventually, someone would say, well, you didn't have to do it so quickly, or you could still say this, or, well, you don't really know, because maybe he was just moving slowly, if the person was on some kind of, if there were drugs on board, maybe, you know, that was a drug reaction, or whatever, and so you could see that there's a gray zone in there, um... So they do have to follow certain procedures absolutely by the book, and yet there's a subject-to-interpretation of the situation.
0: I was just asking you about how the training and what sort of skills you were able to offer people, you know, they're in a situation where they're looking at signals and they're trying to, like you said, is the person stepping back? Are they responding verbally? What were some of the things that you offered them in terms of ways to improve the way that they would handle those things so that they could make the choice to de escalate and to move away from force. What were some of the things that they really responded to and and um learned from?
1: Well we taught some really basic things and I think that they really wanted they needed they needed really concrete things. A, B, C, D. You know, they didn't want series, they just wanted skills and one of the things we gave them a lot were things to say to somebody relative to where they were on the crisis cycle. So if someone's in one, you know, we, we, we t- taught them to recognize the signs of where someone's at, how responsive they are, are they able to communicate, are they not able to communicate, how are they able to communicate, and then within that, how can you talk to somebody, what to say, and really basic things, you know, like always, I mean, just simple stuff, you know, always say your name, you know, introduce yourself, um, ask the person, ask the person if they feel safe. I mean, one of the things that I was really amazed by was the knowledge that um, my colleagues at Project Respond had and um, some of the things that they taught the officers around responding to people in crisis. um, I might have, from my my psychological training, not have gone towards, like they would always ask the person and they taught the police to ask them, do you feel safe? Are you okay? You know? And uh do you need help? really basic things like that? Um, the other thing we taught them was uh, which they I think they found very useful was escalation that uh, when someone 's escalating, one of the things that you know this is where I think process work came in is that we have this idea we have you know a foundation in communication science and If someone's escalating, somewhere their communication is not being received, so they continue to send the message. They're like transmitting and transmitting and transmitting a message until they feel someone's received their message. So they found that very helpful. We taught them how to recognize escalation signals and then how to find what we call in process work the double signal or the unintended message that's needing to be received and attended to. And often that's an emotional distress signal or it's something upsetting and it may not be what they're saying but it's how they're saying it. So, you know, we showed a lot of situations where there's a mismatch where someone's saying something but they're really distraught and they're in a lot of pain, they're in a lot of confusion and the officer or the person responding to them is responding in a very rational, very kind of judgmental or rational or logical tone or almost patronizing or not really attending to the distress signal. So we taught them how to attend to a distress signal and how that right away could de-escalate a situation.
0: What would be an example of that? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of imagining maybe somebody who is holding a weapon, which is an aggressive, angry signal, but they're also crying, which is a vulnerable, sad signal. And maybe you could say, okay, I'm dealing with someone who's Got this side of them that they're vulnerable and they're sad and they want to be connected with on a on a vulnerable level is that does that make sense Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about
1: that, that is the kind of thing unfortunately if they're holding a weapon there's no choice here they have to be taken um they have to be disarmed by an officer there's no an officer will not talk someone down with a gun on him it's not it's just part of their they have to they have to an officer part of the training, the defensive tactics say that you have to use a greater use of force than the person you're working with, so you can't it 's not a competitive battle they the, what i'm about to say sounds really provocative, but what, what the theory but within the force be, because the officers have to protect the the, the public, um, they have to win the battle they can't have a fair fight because it would it, it could it could endanger too many people it could also endanger the officer so They, so if someone has a gun on you, but now here's what I've seen and some of the, some officers are just brilliant at this. And one thing I did see was an officer in a role play situation, uh, uh, take the gun, tell the person what they're going to do. Now, this is something that I, that, that, that's been very effective and that once someone has to be taken into custody, that can go really poorly. I mean, some of the deaths in custody happen because of the way they're taken into custody. So I've seen officers use that de-escalation technique by saying, okay, now I'm, I'm going um, to put handcuffs on and it may hurt, or I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this and we're going to put you in the car now and the reason I'm doing this, or, oh, um, you know, give me your hands, I don't want to hurt you. And there's a lot of ways to talk to somebody, even as you have to take them into custody. Um, the officers are really not trained. They, they can't... They can't... Um, assess a situation and make a judgment call, pretty much, as, as I said earlier, there are gray zones where pretty much they have to do certain things. But the way they do those certain things can really make a big difference in people's lives. Right, and, and I think and,
0: I think this kind of raises the question of, like, well, you're, you're doing a certain level of institutional change, which is that you're trying to provide skills um, and uh, an awareness for the officers who are actually implementing the policies and the procedures that are set up, but at the same time, there's another level of institutional change, which is how those policies and procedures are set up in the first place, like for example, the disciplinary issues, and then the, sort of, there's the larger issue of like, well, what are the alternatives to policing in, in general? And I think that's why it's it's interesting to me to kind of focus in on the work that you're doing, Julie, because it is so extremely concrete and specific. These are really, really clear, um, clear examples of the kinds of things that people that officers can be trained to do even if other levels of change aren't taking place. We can have a better educated um, and greater awareness um, among police officers. And this is something that the, the psychiatric survivor movement and the human rights movement worldwide have been calling for is greater awareness and insight. One of the things I'm, I'm wondering is like, I guess the communication issue is so key, was a lot of the training about communicating with people who are in extreme states of consciousness who aren't maybe communicating in ways that that an ordinary or or reality consensus reality-based person might be expected to communicate and get the police officers familiar with different ways of of Mm -hmm. interaction
1: yeah we did a lot of training there um you know um it may be for those of us with experience um different states of consciousness or working with people you know in this field, uh, it sounds really basic, but um, we had to teach the officers, for example, not to argue with someone's reality, not to like, not to get into a loop. Like one of the escalation things is that it's not just you can, not just learning how to de-escalate, but learning how you yourself are an escalator, and uh, how how the officers cr- can create the conflict. And escalate it and exacerbate a situation and actually make it dangerous and one of the ways they do that are very simple things, like arguing with someone's reality
0: give us an example give us an example like that, like someone says, "My landlord just evicted me unfairly, and then the officer says, "No, they didn't or <laughs> exactly
1: yeah exactly or or there's radios in my room, and they can hear what I'm saying, and there's no radios in your room you know that's not, you know I don't see any radios um, um you know, and that was a really hard thing. Now, that, that was really hard to teach because a lot of officers would say, well, you're asking me to lie, um, and I, that, that's not real. I, I can't go along with something like that, and, um, and it took a lot of skill. We had to, it took a lot of skill to kind of explain why that wasn't lying and that you weren't agreeing with the person's reality just because you weren't arguing with it.
0: Right, this um, is this is actually a really important conflict resolution skill that anyone can right. really learn to de-escalate a situation. Someone is is taking a, a point of view. If you take the opposite point of view, you're just going to escalate the situation. And maybe there's another time and place to argue the reality of are there radios broadcasting in my mind or something. But in the conflict situation or the crisis situation, that's not the time and place to do it, and you want to just kind of sidestep that entirely exactly. and sort of take the other take the other person's point of view and communicate with them on another level. but it sounds like they were they ended up being pretty receptive to that point of view they
1: did i mean that was one of the things that you know in this four day training they really came to understand they could see it, and when we would show it you know either on the videos or with role play, they could really see how you can. You can care for someone. Y- you don't have to. You don't have to disagree or argue with their reality. You don't have to like tell them to. Like for example, another really simple thing is when someone's really upset. To tell them not to be upset is like throwing gasoline on a fire.
0: Right. um... Right. It's
1: it's, a, it's it's not arguing with their reality, but it's not taking it seriously. And that's very very inflant an in, inflaming in thing to do. And so. Um, these were some of the things that we really helped them understand was how to how to sort of keep a situation safe and make people much more responsive to them and how that they could really they could really communicate in different states of consciousness a lot of it's very emotional um it's like it's like learning emotional intelligence and emotional you know skills to deal with people in emotional states
0: yeah i know over the years just working as a peer counselor and working with a lot of people in different kinds of, of distress, I mean, it's it's really clear to me that what we call mental health problems are often really conflict, and they're conflict that isn't being handled well. And I think mm-hmm. that the kind of training that you're offering for police could absolutely be useful for mental health staff as well, because mm-hmm. of the way in which conflict situations escalate and then force gets gets used. And I know that there are some programs going on around the country that are Trying to avoid the use of restraints and force and locking people up by teaching mental health professionals to de-escalate rather than escalate. So those are those are really interesting examples. What are some other examples of the kinds of things that help those officers learn how to de-escalate things in the in the field?
1: This whole thing of trying oh trying to notice where they are on the crisis cycle. What that really means is how. How much can the person uh, attend to what's happening in the moment? Like the more and more and more you're in crisis or the more emotional and more distressed you are, the, the less you're able to um, think and reason, the less you're able to really kind of reflect on what's happening. And so um, we, we're we teaching the officers what to say to someone um, to bring them down. Um, for example, you... you you can't really ask people complex questions when they're in a really emotional state, so we would teach them how to say how to um basically not even not even um, stress the person by asking them a lot of questions or or trying to get a regular response out of them, but how to kind of just mirror what they're doing as a way to bring them down or to just speak to them uh in a you know, in a voice that, you know, yeah, I understand, you're upset, okay, right, Uh uh-huh, and, you know, and we would give them literally lists of things to say at different stages of the cycle where at the right, at the top of the cycle, they would be like noises and sounds, and we would actually, you know, teach the noises and sounds and ways to speak to someone when they're really upset that makes them feel addressed and understood, and it tends to bring them down. A lot, I have to say, a lot of the officers Mm-hmm. were very ha- have a lot of skill and and I was really um had a big lesson um about you know learning how you know that what I thought I was having to, that I, what I thought I had to teach was was something that they a lot of them knew sort of like it was second nature to them so like what I just said like how to talk to someone and bring them down like a lot of them are just very gifted i mean they go into police work because they want to help people that's there too and so um um I was I was always very impressed uh, with, with some of the skills that the officers had.
0: The other sort of stereotype we have is that police are kind of like these soldiers who are out there fighting, and actually most of what they're doing is, is talking to people and yeah. dealing dealing yeah. with conflicts. Yeah, most of
1: what they do is talk, and a yeah. lot of them are really good at it. A lot of them are really, really good at it. I, I, I had some mo- jaw-dropping moments. I would, you know, we'd do role play, and someone would get up there, and they'd do something, and I'd be like, wow, I, I don't know that I... Would be able to have done that in a role play, and um, it was it was impressive you you mentioned
0: mirroring Everybody. you mentioned mirroring the other person when they're in a state where they can't really communicate in a verbal rational way what, what do you tell us more about what you mean by that and how that might be helpful
1: right I, I don't mean mirroring in the way that we might understand it in terms of visual mirroring um, I meant more um, using um, auditory cues. To, to kind of pace where the person's at. If they're really, you know, in a hysterical state and they're, you know, really upset and not quite making sense, just kind of um, using words and sounds um, that that connect with their emotionality. That's what I mean by mirroring. So I say, uh-huh, right, yeah, oh, terrible, terrible. Yeah, that sounds horrible. Yeah, you know, like there's a certain... Um, uh, you know this from um, you probably know this yourself. Well, that if if someone's really upset and their their volume's way up, that actually if, if if you express kind of sympathy, but you your volume kind of matches them, it sometimes helps people. They actually can feel um, that you really get it. So you I don't kind
0: know if of yeah. So you kind of like join them emotionally, and they sort of yeah. They sort of feel like they no longer have to be there because somebody else is, is kind of hearing them or receiving the message. That's right. And, and these yeah, are, yeah, I mean, I said, I, and I think it's interesting. I hope people who are listening to this show will maybe try a f- some experiments on their own and just see what it's like to use some of these skills because they're very, very useful. I mean, we are in so much of human experiences about conflict and so mu- so many of us are in chronic conflicts or getting into conflicts that just a few really simple skills, the kinds of things that that Julie is teaching, I think, can be really helpful to all of us. Julie, what was the um, what would you say your, was your most powerful lesson and and message that you learned yourself in this whole in this whole process?
1: Well, I I was very very uh, impressed. I did my my, my psychology background um, is way in the background. I did a lot of my training a long time ago. And I was very, very impressed with the knowledge I gained about mental illness that I learned through my colleagues on Project Respond and um, uh, and how they interacted with people in crisis. I, uh, you know, feel comfortable with the conflict piece, but their ability to really sort of tune in and understand people, the different states of minds people have, and, and just their knowledge about mental illness, I felt for me that was really, that was a, that was incredible to be able to really um, uh, see what the work that they're doing on the streets with people. Um, and I also, I have to say, being able to, the, the, the most powerful part of the whole thing for me was to be able to uh, see the diversity within the police force and to be part of uh, a, learning, uh, a learning experience where people really, you could really see that they were going through something. It wasn't just a delivery of knowledge. It was like a real transformational process. You know, the four, I did it, I think, three or four times, or two or three times, and then I stopped being the main deliverer of the content, and someone else took that over. But each time we went through it, it was like a journey from the first day to the fourth day. It was like the group had gone through a real process together and a real journey. And, um, and it was a personal growth journey as well as anything else because they really learned about their own experiences too.
0: Are there, are there indications that um, the training that's going on is, is improving the quality of what the police do and, and making things better out on the streets?
1: Um, that's a topic that we're still discussing. I, I would like to have had some kind of um, real measurement uh, in place. Um, the anecdotal evidence from the officers themselves is that they uh, they're finding the training really valuable and that the word after the first training i mean we would hear from people that you know basically you know cops don't like to be told to go to training nobody does but they were saying this was really terrific so they're really appreciating it the translation of you know what's happening out on the streets i would love to be able to capture that data in a real systematic way and um i'm not I don't really know what's happening there. That's really a, a internal police training division matter and I we did have some discussions about it, but I don't know where it's at now. And it would be a real loss not to capture some of that um, before it's before the training's are uh, over.
0: Well, yeah, especially since I think there the public is really wanting results after. Not just James Chassie, there have been some other deaths in custody. I guess one of the most tragic um that happened, I don't know if you know about this, but there was a um a man, um, Raymond Guerter, who was apparently, the newspaper said he was drunk and despondent, and he had a handgun. This was actually what, what I was thinking when I had mentioned about what do you do with someone who's got a weapon. And he was in the backyard, he was of his house, he was upset, he was maybe suicidal, but apparently he was actually talking with um, a crisis counselor from the police force on the cell phone at the very moment that a, sn- a police sniper. Made the decision that look he's got a gun we've got to take him down and he was in mid sentence apparently, talking with a counselor and the police, just um, killed him. So.
1: Well, that was a that was a uh, mis that, that was a tra- that's an unbelievable tragedy and that was a miscommunication another situation that was a miscommunication between the hostage negotiation team and the uh, special the cert team which is the one who goes in with um, uh, guns and sniper team for hostage situations that was a complete breakdown of command structure and interestingly enough, um, I just read a report on that that uh, Chief Sizer that they went through a big review and the outcome of that is that they're going to create a a brand new team uh, called, um, I think it's called critical incident response or critical incident something like that and they're putting, Lee's Beth is going to be working on that team so they're going to so that there's never going to be that breakdown of communication again, or they hope there won't be that breakdown. They'll, um, they're will they actually putting the crisis intervention coordinator on that um, special team. So,
0: Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible story, and it just makes me think that, I mean, if you've got a policy in place that says man with gun, you have to use overwhelming force, you have to take him down, that's really a misunderstanding of what... Um, suicidal gestures are someone who is maybe picking up a gun or picking up a knife may not be preparing to attack the people around them they just may be struggling with very intense feelings of suicide and very reachable I mean I know that I've um, you know worked as a as a peer counselor with people who have had weapons or have been in violence situations and just knowing when someone is directing their hostility outwards and when they're really just kind of struggling with mm-hmm. their own suicidal, it seems like it's an educational process too that could that could need to take place in the in the police force around that as well.
1: It's really true, and the, as I said before, that was a real breakdown in communication because it was they were indeed the the, the hostage negotiation group were working with a person trying to deescalate them verbally, and they didn't have knowledge. It wasn't their team that fired the shot; it was another team, and so. Um, I think there are people, there are, you know, within the force, there are people who do want to see that greater awareness um, implemented.
0: Yeah, it's a really, it's a dramatic illustration that maybe there are two, there are kind of two processes going on. One is a more kind of war on terror, law and order. You know, if they've got a gun, we have to shoot them first. Um, Preemptive kind of approach. And then something that I think is really happening in the U.S. as well, where very innovative um, social, emotional, psychological kinds of approaches are coming in with the restorative justice movement, with the work that you're doing. So do you, are you hopeful that maybe the kind of the, the more um, insightful and awareness-based approaches will kind of win out over the more militaristic approaches that seem to be very um, popular as well?
1: I I am optimistic, and I think, um, I guess on a closing note, I think that what I would, what I think it depends on, though, is I think it depends a lot, well, on many, many things, but I think that the experiences of those people who are under pressure, who have to deal with the law and order issues that the rest of the population gives over to them to be dealt with, that their voices and, and all their diversity have to be heard as well that they're not just servants to be told how to deal with it. I think that the police inherit the problems that the public don't want to deal with. And, um, you know, if the community doesn't fund mental health, then it ends up on the streets and it ends up on the cops' watch. And that, you know, I feel like citizens at large have to take responsibility for what's happening, too. And um, we really uh, outsource these issues to the police, and then we hate how they deal with it well, you can't have it both ways, I feel. I I feel that if we're not going to, you know, pay taxes so that we have some humane and compassionate responses to these problems, um, you know, we can't just criticize the police and sit back. I mean,
0: yeah, Yeah, there's definitely a cultural kind of response of like, oh, something is happening, let's call 911, or, oh, this is not working, let's call the police. And I know that we've, you know, I've, I've, really been working on this theme quite a bit on the radio show we had a restorative justice guest on once we also had someone who came in and talked about um active bystandership that how like you're saying how can communities take responsibility of not just offloading the issue to the police to deal with de-escalating or dealing with if there's someone on the street that you're scared of maybe there's other ways to deal with it other than just calling the police and expecting them to handle it and then of course you're absolutely right that there was a A real failure with um, the deinstitutionalization happened and there wasn't and there still haven't been really good funded community based mental health services to help people that are effective and the people who work in them get to have the resources that they need that that really never happened. And instead, we've been relying on the police and then the criminal justice system and the expansion of the prison industrial complex. Well Julie we've we're about out of time and I I really want to thank you for coming in and giving this giving us this incredible insider perspective on the, how the police are are kind of dealing with this and what it's like from the police's point of view on the street. I really I really think this is an invaluable perspective that you're bringing and I really I really thank you for joining us today on the show.
1: Thank you Will. It's been a real pleasure and I really enjoy the opportunity to talk about these things and uh great work that you're doing too thanks for having the show in the first place
0: yeah thanks a lot and if people want to find out more about your work or about process work you have a website is that right
1: i do my website's uh www.juliediamond.net and uh there is an another podcast that i did with uh, kate Job called process work live and i talked about the police work i did there so it adds another dimension i cover things there that i didn't cover here so um
0: Great, well, I'll I'll make sure and link to both of those on the the Madness Radio website. So thanks a lot for joining us, Julie Diamond.
1: Thank you very much, Will.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Julie Diamond. Julie Diamond is a faculty and therapist with the Process Work Institute of Portland, and she has been doing work um, with training uh, the Portland Police Department around uh, conflict resolution, de-escalation, and crisis intervention. That's about all the time that we have this week. Thanks a lot for tuning in to Madness Radio. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.
1: KWMD Kasilov Anchorage 104.5